Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, and along with me on this journey back to the 80s is my co-host, Jason Masek. Great, Jason. Low on Earth is now the eve of the longest day. Very well, Bill. Release the Kraken. That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing the 1981 fantasy adventure Clash of the Titans, starring Harry Hamlin, Judy Boker, and Burgess Meredith. Directed by Desmond Davis, this movie is rated PG with a running time of one hour and 58 minutes. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. A spectacular screen entertainment based on centuries-old Greek and Nordic legends, Clash of the Titans depicts the heroic adventures of Perseus as he battles magic, monsters, and ancient gods to rescue beautiful Andromeda from a primeval sea horror. Because he is a son of the great god Zeus, Perseus unknowingly is involved in the body bickerings and angry conflicts of the gods themselves as they look down from Mount Olympus and separately decide that the very human love of Perseus and Andromeda is something to help or to smash. In Clash of the Titans, the gods are created by Laurence Olivier as the womanizing Zeus, Maggie Smith as Thetis, the sea goddess, Claire Bloom as Hera, Zeus's embittered wife, and Ursula Andress as Aphrodite, goddess of love. The monsters are created by Ray Harryhausen, whose dinorama process weds live action and fantastic special effects. Among his monsters are a hag whose snake hair paralyzes, a two-headed dog whose mouths drip poison, three witches who share a single eye, and other nightmare horrors. True movie magic. Experience the fantastic Clash of the Titans. Jason, great job with that. All those crazy Greek names and stuff. You know, I'm just going to let it be. I stumbled a little bit here and there, but I am still happy with my performance. You know, I'm just glad to be here and and just uh, glad to be part of the team. Dude, let's do it, man. Let's get into it. Clash of the Titans, 1981. Oh man, this uh, <laughs> this was a uh, this was a fun watch. <laughs> I haven't seen this in years. Uh, do we want to want to kick it off with our earliest memories? Yeah, to start there, earliest memories of Clash of the Titans. What do you remember? I didn't see this one in the theater. However, I actually remembered a lot because this is most definitely one of the films I recall rewatching many many times on HBO. Obviously, many of these films we will discuss and have discussed were rewatchable on HBO. But this one I watched on repeat and so much so that I recall a great memory of mine. I was actually on vacation and uh, my parents went out. I was with my sister and this was in the Lake Tahoe area and we were at home and I got so excited that Clash of the Titans was coming on. And I wanted to watch it. And my sister actually wanted to watch it. And she is a movie fan, but not a buff like me. And yes, my sister and I, we're going to sit down and watch this movie for the hundredth time. And it's going to be great. And it was. I loved this movie as a kid. I mean, it's the classic hero's journey. 
it's basically what every growing boy wants, just like Star Wars. It was the mix of the, the fantasy and the magic, and there's gods or titans uh, versus earthlings. Anyway, so I recall that story. You know, I, just, I just remember my sister actually wanting to see this movie with me, which was pretty cool. Uh, I recall, of course, Harry Hamlin in the starring role as Perseus and taking on the challenge in this movie and being uh, the hero. I don't know, for some reason, one of my earliest memories was all this, this weird projection stuff that they did in the movie of like the gods' faces projecting onto static objects, uh, whether it be, you know, we know it happens uh, on the, the back of Perseus' shield that he re- receives from the gods. But then uh, for me, the early memory was, and it was scary as a kid, was the big statue in the hall where I think it's uh, Cassiopeia is about to wed Perseus and Andromeda. Mm -hmm. And you have the statue kind of looming above them. And I think the statue, uh, the statue is supposed to be of Thetis, right? And we have then all of a sudden Thetis appears, her face is projected onto the head of the statue. And it just looks creepy, especially as a kid watching that. I'm like, What's happening? And then she starts talking and like, yeah, now I'm freaked out. What's going on? And then, of course, she hands down her decree. You know, it's just basically that Andromeda in 30 days time is to be tied to the rocks or chained to the rocks and sacrificed to the Kraken. Anyway, uh, so that was an early memory. Yeah. So, again, back to good old Harry Hamlin. Uh, the fact that he's got a par- you know, pass a series of tests, basically, of these trials he must endure within this set amount of time, within 30 days. I remember that, of course, uh, overcoming obstacles and, and facing witches and battling crazy creatures. Uh, you know, it's the classic tale. He's got to save the princess. Gosh, the God aspect of it. I remember as a kid, I thought it was kind of cool that Zeus and his fellow gods were kind of playing with their action figures. Yes. And that's what I like recalled. In like uh, on a little Earth playset, <laughs> yeah, the little Coliseum. You know, as kids, like we had our Star Wars action figures, and we play with the Dagobah playset or the Hoth playset. But in this movie, we have the gods who are playing with what are like basically little clay statues, but they look they're figurines, right, of humans. Uh, I also call them voodoo dolls. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's basically what they are. So I recall that as a kid, I thought that was cool. It's like ah, yes the gods and their little human playthings. So that was always fascinating to me. I remember one of my favorite sequences as a kid being the uh, everything that had to do with uh, the uh, Calibus, the Prince Calibus, and kind of what I thought as a kid is like the underworld. But in, in the movie, it's actually just, he's the Lord of the Marsh. Yeah. So it's just these kind of swampy marshes. But it feels swamps. Yeah. Like the Everglades. Yeah. And uh, it seems like the underworld in a way. And that was very mysterious and dark to me as a kid. And yeah, especially that was kind of freaky. The fact that Perseus cuts off Calibus's hand. There's a lot of things that affected me in this movie as a kid. There's the magic and the fantasy, the witches, and the, they're creepy. I remember that because uh, I'm like, what, nine years old, probably when I saw this on cable. There's the mechanical owl, Pegasus, the winged horse, the stop motion animation effects. I even knew then that it was slightly cheesy. And I think I'd been spoiled probably by 
movies such as The Empire Strikes Back, which had come out the year previous, and other big blockbusters that had been coming out. Superman, 1978, some really quality special effects at the time. And so when this comes out, I think I recognize there's some cheese here with this animation, but it still was cool enough and it worked for me as a kid. But back to the creep factor for me, most of all, uh, my biggest memory, Medusa. Oh, Has yeah. to be. Gotta be. Creeped me out. And I'll get to my reaction to it now, which might surprise you, actually, because it's a positive one. It's still, I think, effective. But man, as a kid, Medusa slithering around with the tail rattling with the snakes in the hair. Are you kidding me? And the glowing eyes don't look at her or she will turn you into stone. I was a little freaked by Medusa and loved how Harry Hamlin managed to outmaneuver. I would watch that all the time, just that sequence. And the tactics that he uses in that scene, great stuff. And of course, at the end, I remember, you know, the, the Kraken uh, and the heroes moment at the end. Just wonderful stuff. Uh, so those are all my great memories. Yeah, just watch it a thousand times. How about you, Bill? Uh, for me, I think what I remember about is our neighbors that live kind of behind us. I grew up in Philadelphia at a row home. So it was like a set of homes and then you had like a driveway that's separated and then you had a set of homes behind us. So we had family friends that lived behind us and they went and saw it in the movie. And of course, you know, growing up as a kid, we were always playing Star Wars and it was always fun because, you know, you'd use your swings as X-Wing fighters to go from planet to planet. <laughs> yeah. You know, you'd use wiffle ball bats as lightsabers and all that fun stuff. They're like three boys. Um, one was like a year younger than me. One was my brother's age and then the, a younger one. And they went and saw Clash of the Titans. And I remember them coming home and they're like, oh, we're going to play Clash of the Titans. I'm like, what the hell is that? And, <laughs> and we're trying to, you know, they're trying to explain the movie to me. And of course, you know, we're nine, eight years old trying to play Clash of the Titans. But I had no one, you know, I hadn't seen the movie, so I had no idea what was going on. So it was kind of a disaster, but it was kind of fun, too. But that's what I kind of really first heard about that movie. That's right. Yeah. And then, of course when it finally came on HBO, that was the first time I watched it. And the second time I watched it and the third time I watched right. it and the fourth time. Yeah. And, and so on and so on. Just like you, it's just, just all the creatures um, and characters yeah. in the film seeing Pegasus. We weren't at that age in school where we knew really anything about, well, you knew about the gods, but not so much the mythology aspects of it. Right. We had learned that stuff in school. Yeah. We just didn't study it at length. Yeah. Of course, the scene with Medusa, yeah, you kind of being scared the first time I saw it. Oh, sure. I was totally scared. Yeah. And it just bends over and all that blood comes out. Oh. Weird blood comes out. That's still, so that's still, I still want to know. Yeah. I want to know what that stuff normal. was. Yeah. It's nasty. Mm -hmm. well, of course, I love the Kraken. The Kraken was so goddamn cool. Yeah. That was just a neat creature. So I, I love this movie. I used to watch it all the time. I enjoyed it. Um, I understand what you're saying about the special effects were already kind of dated at the time. But I, it never really bothered me. I don't know, because part of me is just like, hey, you know, it's it's mythical. It's fantasy. Maybe that's right. just how they move. And I accepted it and understood what it was all about. But yeah, that was one I just watched over and over again. It was certainly um, a childhood favorite. And yeah, God, they played it on HBO all the time. And it's just so funny to think about when those movies came out, you had to like set your schedule around watching that movie compared to now. It's like, oh, 
you know, I'm just going to go stream this at 5.35 in the afternoon or 10.28. No, it's like, all right, it's, it's the HBO movie of the week at 8 o'clock on a Saturday. And that's when you're going to watch it and until, you know, we had VCRs and you would tape it and then watch it whenever you want. My dad would like read the list of all the movies that were coming out. And it's like, oh, okay, this is what I want to watch today. When he said Clash of the Titans was on, then I was rearranging my play schedule to make sure I saw it. 100%. You just brought up some other great memories because I remember when our family would receive the HBO program in the mail, you would yes. get the actual program. And it was almost like an eight by 10 or eight by 11 program. It was big mm-hmm. and it would have basically their highlighted movie or the movie that was premiering the big blockbuster, whatever might be on the cover. And I remember the star Wars issue and just couldn't be more excited for that. And it was the, you know, the classic poster of a new hope on the cover. And it was like, Oh, this is incredible. We're going to be able to watch star Wars on TV. And like you said, you weren't able to uh, you had to plan around it because not all of us had VHS player or recorder. And Even if you did, you probably had it home, but you didn't have it on the road. So if you're watching a TV somewhere else or a friend's house, maybe who doesn't have you. So you had, you know, you had to schedule. uh, There were showtimes, you know, showtimes that you had to to be there for for when the movie started or else you were going to miss it. And that was it. So it was it was an event always. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it was cool. Uh, Now that I think it was just fun. It was always exciting. It was something to plan around and look forward to. But it it is interesting that Clash of the Titans, as far as my earliest memories go, was maybe the first movie I watched on repeat on HBO. I could be wrong. I'm trying to think of anything earlier than that that came out on HBO. That I I don't know, because I don't know if Star Wars, when Star Wars came out on HBO. That's something to look up, because that may have probably, that would have been the first one. Mm Mm-hmm. It's funny that you mentioned that because part of me is like, oh, my God, I almost kind of remember that, too, now. Yeah, because Star Wars was released in theaters 78, re-released in 78. I'm sorry, what did I say? 77 is when it came out in theaters and then re-released in 78. And then I don't know how long afterward it came out on HBO. Had to be a couple of years yeah, Got to look into the history of HBO and when it, I, I meant to do that, actually. Yeah, because I remember when, I, when we first got it, HBO was 24-7. Mm-hmm. didn't come on until six o'clock right see yeah we need a history of hbo documentary yeah you know but i always uh, remember that opening like hbo oh yeah the pov shot you're flying through and then you go down into the street and you're going through the town that one was my favorite one yeah yeah when they did that one and they actually yeah there was always there's like an extended one and kind of a shorter version yeah yeah i remember they actually did the documentary on the making of that one Oh, yeah. The thing that, like, HBO should Da-da-da. like... Now that song's bad. Awesome. Yeah, music videos and all that kind of stuff, too, between films. Oh, good times. Ah, just go off on a tangent about I know. the home box office. Uh, great stuff, man. Yeah, so you want to get into some initial thoughts? Yes. Going from the thoughts. then to the now. Go for it. Right off the bat, man. <laughs> I'm just laughing because I knew I was in store for some of the, like we mentioned, the special effects that they would be somewhat outdated. And I'm going to agree with you, Bill, like at that time watching it as a kid, I think I was just kind of like unconsciously aware of kind of the the cheesy effects, but no, it didn't bother me either. I totally bought this hook, line and sinker as a kid. Like I said, Medusa freaked me out. The Kraken was awesome, impressive and extremely intimidating. I 
loved, you know, even the scorpions. Every, yeah, it was cool. So I just wanted to mention that. But in the opening credits regarding the special effects, I just started laughing immediately because we are following a seagull that's flying. Well, we have basically before the even opening credits, we have a cold open of sorts. Then we understand that uh, the daughter of the local uh, king of Argos, I believe, is yes. being banished, not only banished, but she's being thrown into what is like a casket uh, with her young son, this young lady is Danae, and her young son is Perseus as a small baby. And they're getting thrown into a casket, locked in a casket and thrown into the sea. And this is not good. No. And a seagull seems to be watching this from high above. And then the music kicks in, and the credits kick in, and the seagull flies away and goes across the mountains and, oh, you know, across the countryside. And then finally to Mount Olympus. But before... Before the seagull gets to Mount Olympus, we get some wonderful shadow seagulls, which are really weird. I was like, why are we doing special effects here? We just keep doing the shots of seagulls flying or a seagull flying that we're following or the POV shots uh, from the seagull's point of view where we're just seeing him, you know, like uh, flying and hovering above these mountains, which was pretty cool especially with the wonderful music, uh, this thematic orchestral score in the background and we're watching the credits roll. Uh, I just thought that was funny right off the bat. I'm like, oh, here come the effects right away. We <laughs> get some yeah. really cheesy, bad seagull effects, some weird stop motion or stop animation. Yeah, why, with I don't know what that was Why don't was they about. use like a hawk or some kind of bird they could actually track? I don't know. I thought yeah. that was weird too. I was like, why are you using a seagull? But uh, we are introduced to our heavenly overlords and the gods uh, within Mount Olympus and Zeus, who is played by Laurence Olivier. And I was just thinking, have you, Bill, seen anything else at all, a movie or TV show that stars Laurence Olivier? Embarrassingly, no. I haven't either. I have never watched another film or on-screen performance by Lawrence, the great, great Lawrence Olivier, regarded as one of the greatest actors of all time. So shout out to Lawrence Olivier right off the bat, who plays Zeus, as I had mentioned, and definitely some echoes of Marlon Brando and Superman. Oh, wait, where, Lawrence in the Marathon Man. Ah, He has a scene in that. Okay. But it's not the main character, but yeah, that's the only other movie I probably saw him in. There you go. Uh, but I, I definitely was feeling, yeah, some echoes of Marlon Brando, because Marlon Brando obviously has a small, small role, which he got billed, paid millions and millions of dollars for in the beginning of Superman from 1978. Uh, but here now we have another wonderful actor, Lawrence Olivier, who is actually has a bit larger role in this, but kind of the father of the chosen one as well in this movie. Anyway, speaking of Lawrence Olivier, because uh, we just got to mention this right off the bat, you know, regarded as one of the greatest actors of all time. Uh, well-known for his uh, stage work, uh, Shakespearean roles. Uh, that was his forte. Uh, but also for his on-screen work, he had received four Academy Awards, uh, two British Academy Film Awards, five Emmy Awards, three Golden Globe Awards. He was married to Vivian Lee from 1940 to 1960. Uh, the four Academy Awards, two of them were honorary, but he won two Academy Awards for Hamlet for best actor and producer uh, as a producer on the film. Mm -hmm. Anyway, another initial thought, you know, right away when Zeus calls up uh, Poseidon 
calls upon Poseidon to release the Kraken upon Argos, because in this movie, Zeus is not happy because of the fact that uh, he is the one that actually caused the king of Argos to become upset and banish his daughter and, uh, I guess, grandson to the sea. And uh, it turns out Zeus was the one that had an affair with uh, the king's daughter. And so Perseus, the grandson, is actually Zeus's son. But Zeus is pissed because he's like, oh, this king of Argos uh, just uh, threw this love of mine and my my son into the sea. So I'm going to exact my revenge. I order Poseidon to release the Kraken upon Argos, which he does. And we get some wonderful visual effects in this. And I was like, oh, here we go. Uh, But it was still cool to see the Kraken as this like long giant lizard creature come out of that. There's that cool, uh, well, we first we see Poseidon underwater. I'd never, I don't know if I caught this as a kid. He's so small in like the corner of the screen, but he uses that winch to kind of raise the gate underwater. And then the giant Kraken lizard creature swims out and then comes out from the water. It just, it's pretty awesome. And then just like unleashes a tidal wave uh, across and like thousands of people die. Yes. So that was cool just to see right off the bat. Uh, like I mentioned, we get to see Zeus play with his voodoo dolls. He like crushes one of the figurines and thus crushing the king. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty brutal. Oh, yeah. Initial thought. Yeah. So the gods are not very nice in this movie. No, they're not. They're not. Because uh, uh, Zeus, you know, he was, he was upset, but he does commit mass murder. Then Thetis... Now is like there's another story here with the gods because Thetis, who is the sea goddess, she's upset because Zeus has punished her son, Prince Calibus, for his crimes. Now, her son, Calibus, who is also in the earthly realm, not a good dude, uh, killed a bunch of Zeus's flying horses, only left one, that being Pegasus, alive. Uh, so Zeus punishes him, but Thetis is not happy because Calibus is her son. Then she decides to punish Andromeda out of spite and says, well, if because Prince Calibus was going to marry Andromeda. And if now Prince Calibus is being punished and turned into a creature, which we'll talk about this uh, not attractive creature, if he's not going to marry Andromeda, then no man will. And so Theotis decides to punish Andromeda. Anyway, there's just they're all cruel and unfaithful and jealous. And my initial thought here is that the gods in this movie are just a bunch of dicks. There you go. Yeah, man. God, I forgot that Zeus visited Perseus. This is near the beginning of the film uh, on the back of his shield. I talked about the, the, the projection. It was the, a special effect they used in this movie, the projection of the faces on yeah. inanimate or objects. Uh, I forgot that actually happened. I'm like, his shield is talking to him. And then he flips it over and there's Zeus's face. I'm like, that's weird. Um, and I was like, I'm pretty sure they stole this from the Empire Strikes Back a year ago when the visage of Obi-Wan Kenobi appears to Luke on Hoth. And I was like, I call bullshit. That's not true. This is another initial thought I had right after that sequence when Perseus is like, they, the gods bestow three gifts upon him. They give him this fancy sword, a fancy shield, and a fancy helmet that renders him invisible, which is pretty awesome. Perseus gets all excited to go to Joppa with his helmet right. on and just leaves the shield and the sword behind. I'm like, you fucking idiot. Why what does he even doing? need to be invisible to even walk uh, to Joppa? It's a big deal about that. <laughs> it's just like, I got a new toy. Yep. 
Hey, Harry Hamlin. Hey, man, this guy's got one serious head of lettuce. How about the hair on that guy? Handsome lad. Probably still best known for his uh, run on L.A. Law, which yes. he was on from 1986 through 1991. The show lasted in 94, but he was on it through 91. And he's the reason why I watched that show. Because I was uh-huh. like, hey, it's the guy from Clash of the Titans. I haven't seen him since Clash of the Titans. What the hell is he doing now? And <laughs> huge fan of L.A. Law. Yeah. I need to go back and watch that show at some point. I never got into that show. I, oh. Maybe I'll, I'll revisit w- it with you. Bill. I think I started binge watching before it became binge watching because when I was away in college, my mom would literally tape the episode every week for me. And when I would come back from Christmas break, I would watch like all the episodes in, in one or two days. And then I love she it, would tape the rest for me. And then when I got back from summer, I'd watch the second half of the season. So here's the plan. You, myself, and program director Hillary, your wife, will do a movie marathon of the Sleepaway Camp series, and then we'll binge watch L.A. Law right after that. I mean, the two go hand in hand pretty much, right? Yeah. yeah. Sleepaway Camp and L.A. Law. It's like peanut butter and jelly. (laughs) So Harry Hamlin is our hero in this film, our protagonist, Perseus, son of Zeus. Hey, just FYI, I was talking about how handsome this guy is with the head of lettuce. He had actually started a miniseries in 1979 uh, before Clash of the Titans. And this miniseries was entitled Studs Lonigan. <laughs> Studs Lonigan. Oh, my God. And as you may guess, he played the titular character, Studs Lonigan. Wow. Is he <laughs> amazing and appropriate. Hey, this was something that freaked me out as a kid. I remember this. I should just put this in my earliest memories. I misplaced this item. When Perseus arrives at Joppa to see what all the hubbub is about and see who Andromeda is eventually, the image of uh, the poor sap that was uh, burned at the stake. Oh, yeah. That really bothered me as a kid. Yeah, it was like was a very disturbing image. I don't need to see that. And they cut to it a couple times, like three times in this movie. And I remember that. It still bothers my, like, that's a bad childhood memory of mine. Anyway, the plot is a little more involved than I had remembered. There's a lot of, like, characters in this movie. A lot of names, a lot of places, a lot of Greek names. Yes. Don't quiz me. Right? Really had to take some notes and write this shit down for this podcast, guys. Just saying. We, put some, we do put a little effort into this. Well, no, it's just, I, I didn't remember that there was so much going on in this movie, trying to keep all this stuff straight. Love me some Burgess Meredith. Yes. He plays Amon, poet. I guess, buddy, to Perseus in this movie. I know. He just welcomes him. First, he tries to scare the shit out of him, and then it's just like, oh, <laughs> ah, you can come live with me. Here's some Who clothes. are you? And I was just always waiting for him the entire movie just to be like, Come on, Rock! Come on, Rock! That's a terrible Burgess Meredith impersonation, but it's... Anyway, other great actors in this movie. Maggie Smith is in this. She plays Thetis uh, because mainly when we're dealing with the gods in this movie, the Greek gods, where it's the back and forth between Thetis and Zeus. And Maggie Smith, powerhouse. She's been around a long time, long time, but well-known as uh, for her role as Professor Minerva McGonagall. In the Harry Potter film series, most recently known for her role as Violet Crawley, Dowager Countess of Grantham on Downton Abbey, which she uh, won three Emmys for. Oh, two-time uh, Oscar winner, too. It's crazy. Uh, she's awesome. You got any other initial thoughts, Bill Pam? Yeah, this is kind of embarrassing because, like I said, I've seen this movie 
so many times and I never really put the title. I was just, yeah, I was just like Clash of the Titans. I didn't realize it really is when you're talking about Clash of the Titans, it is the crack and verse Medusa and everything else is just filler. It's all about the two Titans battling it at the end, which is like a two minute scene. And the rest of it's just filler, all this Perseus and all this other stuff. I was like, Oh crap. I, That's never, a got, I never got the meaning of the, of the title. I just figured it was just something to do with Greek mythology. That I just didn't know about, but it's clash of the Titans because you have two Titans clashing at the end of the film. It's it's funny how something so simple can get past you, especially as a kid. And I, I think about that now too, when you start looking at the titles of these movies, you're like, what? oh, that's what that really means. Because you take it for granted, but especially as a kid, you're just like, I don't know, it sounds cool. Or I assume the Titans are the gods, you know, right. or whatever it might be. But then I'm like, oh, like I mentioned, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you start thinking about the title. Oh, that's pretty cool. I get it. I understand it now. Even though it's right in your face, it couldn't be more obvious, but it's just, you don't give it a second thought. Yep. You just kind of make an assumption or you're just like, sounds good. All right, let's watch the movie. Uh, but you're right. Yeah. Kraken versus Medusa. There you go. Yeah. The big battle. Um, the second thing was, because like I said, I've seen this so many times, it was interesting to go back and watch it because it's like, how much of this did I actually forget? Because I thought I really remembered a lot of the film before I, I saw it. And I realized most of the scenes with Andromeda, mm-hmm. I forgot just about all of that. And I realized there's a reason for that. She's a bore. <laughs> she's the least really, interesting part of the movie. Yeah. She's really pretty. And she is. Yeah. I understand why at the beginning, Perseus wants her hand in marriage. Mm-hmm. But I think after a date or two, I'd be like, you know what? I, I just don't think this is working out. Sorry about the whole Kraken thing. But yeah, every time she came into the scene, I was like, oh, I don't remember the scene. Oh, okay. Now I know I don't know the scene. Oh, I don't remember the scene. Oh, yeah. Like, I didn't even remember that she had a brief nude scene in it. That's mm. I, I didn't even remember that. Yeah, I believe, yeah, a little side boob. Yeah, a little side boob. And some uh, butt cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Ah, love it. Love but, it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, Perseus probably eventually would be like, you know what? Let's just take a break, Andromeda. I'm going to go visit Zeus. Yes. Don't get jealous. I may be hanging out with Aphrodite and Athena for a bit. Like if this was like The Bachelor and Aphrodite was the prize and then she, you know, she picked Perseus, you know, when they would do the reunion special, be like, yeah, we decided this is just not working out. We're going to go our separate ways. That's that's what I think would happen. <laughs> and if it was a modern day take on this, I think that's, that's what would happen. I, I don't know if it's so much it's because... She was a princess, but I really just didn't think she had any personality. Yeah, they didn't give her a whole lot to do. I mean, you're hot. I, I, hey. <laughs> but hey, hot, hot only takes you so far. Good old Perseus was smitten from yes. it was love at first sight for him. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, that could be later for a question, I suppose, is how long does the relationship last? You know, Perseus and Andromeda, how long do they last? But like you said, yeah, in the reunion episode, maybe they've already broken up at that point. They're just I, like, you know I what? I think so. It was all superficial at the beginning. And yeah, they do their thing in the Bachelor suite. And yeah, then it's just like, okay, I got what I wanted. I'll see you later. Leaves a little note on the pillow and then and takes off. <laughs> there it is. I like, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, we talk about our earliest memories, kind of the then and uh, the initial thoughts, which is the now. And I have to say, I had a lot of fun watching this movie again these years later. It's been several years since I've seen it. 
I understand now why I watched it so many times as a kid. I remembered a ton of this movie. There was some stuff in the beginning I'd forgotten. That was about it, though. It's a blast. I love this movie. I still do. And this was funny, too, because, of course, you know, they remade this movie in 2010. Yep. Sam Worthington. Yeah. They got some heavy hitters in that one, too. I Um, didn't remember a thing about it. Liam Neeson, Ray Fiennes. Yeah. And I even watched the trailer. Just like, oh, okay, maybe it'll draw up some memories. And even watching the trailer, I was like, did I watch this? I watched both. They had a sequel too, The Wrath of the Titans. I couldn't tell you a thing about that movie. I could, I can pretty much tell you most of this film from memory. And I haven't seen this in probably 15 years. Yeah. I certainly remember way more about this one than I do the remake. No, me too. I have like the remakes, I have images and stuff, and they were okay, but yeah, forgettable. They weren't terrible. They weren't bad movies. It was just hmm, all right. But yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this this movie and uh, definitely a lot of nostalgia attached to it. Anyway, uh, we can keep this moving, buddy. Yeah, let's move on to uh, favorite scenes or moments. So uh, what are some of your favorite scenes and moments from Clash of the Titans? So this is a moment I'm going to start with, Bill Bant. And this is uh, when Zeus is playing with his figurines. Mm-hmm. No, sir, I wasn't playing with my dolls again. Yes. He is talking to Thetis about his son, Prince Calibus, who not a good guy. And he says to Thetis, your son, he killed all of my winged horses except for one, and he must be punished. And meanwhile, he's has the figurine of Calibus standing in his, what I call the playset. He's got Calibus, the figurine of Calibus, standing up in the middle of this playset thing, the model. And he is in human form. And then Zeus goes on to say, well, I'm going to turn into this creature that no one will want to look upon because he will be hideous, et cetera. I'm paraphrasing, but um, he's gonna, I'm going to turn him into this uh, gnarly creature uh, to, so he shall pay for his crimes. And uh, he will not marry Andromeda because she will not look upon him the same ever again. And as he's telling Thetis this, and she's horrified that this is going to happen to her son, basically, we the camera is focused on the figurine, and then it kind of pans to the left, and we see the shadow that the figurine casts. And as Zeus is describing the creature that Calibus is about to become, we see the shadow transform. It's a cool special effect, and he grows like the serpentine sort of uh, tail, and uh, the claws on his hands uh, extend. And then the camera pans back over to the figurine of Calibus, who is no longer in human form as a man, but now is the creature that is Calibus, which is more like a satyr, I believe, S-A-T-Y-R, if I'm not mistaken, kind of like half man, half creature, right? which is a mythological creature that he's been turned into. I thought that was a cool effect. I love that moment. That's just, that's just, a, I'm just giving it a shout out. Yeah, they love to use the the shadows in this film, and that's definitely the best use of it, too. I thought that was always pretty cool, too. It was creative because we get, yeah, sure, we get some some crazy Ray Harryhausen effects in here, but that I thought was kind of creative in the way that we didn't actually need to see the figurine transform with some cheesy effects, just watch the shadow. It was like a shadow puppet, almost. Yeah, I did like that a lot, too. That was cool. But I'll have to say, I'll just jump right into my first favorite scene. It really is the Calibus scene. And that's what I remember as a kid. I mentioned in my earliest memories is what I thought of as like the underworld. But 
in this movie, we know that Perseus has tr- uh, now magically appeared in the town or nearby the town of Japo and has now become friends with Aman and they walk over to downtown area <laughs> and basically Perseus learns of what's happening in the town. Everything has kind of gone to hell in this town because Calibus has kind of cursed this town. Calibus and his mother Theatus have kind of cursed this town. Andromeda is now trying, is looking for a new suitor. New suitors are approaching Andromeda to try and marry her. But the curse is that uh, these suitors are having to solve a riddle that she presents them with. And the riddle is always changing. And if you don't solve the riddle, uh, you're burned at the stake. And that's not a good end. So Perseus decides to investigate and goes, uh, well, he puts on his uh, fancy little helmet, turns invisible, and goes to visit Andromeda while she is sleeping. A little bit of a creeper move. Yes. Most definitely. But... There is the lovely, beautiful Andromeda who's sleeping and Perseus witnesses the fact that she becomes embodied. She like the visage, her image, she's removed from her body, like a ghost, like visage of her rises from her physical form. And she, this ghost image of her kind of sleeps walk, walks onto the patio where there's this giant vulture awaiting her with a cage. And she climbs into the cage and the vulture flies away. And long story short, Perseus, upon the flying horse Pegasus, follows the vulture and Andromeda to the marsh. And that's where we see Prince Calibus, who is awaiting Andromeda. And Calibus is the lord of the marsh. And he is now, we see him in the flesh. He is this creature, this satyr-like creature. And I actually think this is pretty cool when we actually see his face. I think the makeup is pretty sweet. I did like it too. I think he looks pretty badass and he is a crazy looking creature. Neil McCarthy is the actor that plays him, portrays him, and his voice is great. Yes. And he's this sad creature, but he's not good. And I just love this whole scene because it's dark, it's marshy. We have alligators, it's swampy. Calibus is sitting upon his own throne amongst the marsh and he's surrounded by like these Neanderthals. So he has his, like his own like followers there yep. grouping around him. And now we have this visage of Andromeda step out of the cage that the, the vulture has carried to this marshland. And she approaches him and he says, you have to learn another riddle. And she's like, why do you keep making me do this? And he just needs to see her in any form uh, because he's still in love with her, even though he can't be with her. And now we have good old Perseus, who is still creeping around uh, with his invisible uh, or his invisibility helmet on, and he's been witnessing this. And there's a great moment where Calibus, after Andromeda has learned this riddle, gets back in the cage, Vulture takes her back. Perseus is hanging around, and he's invisible, but his footprints are visible in the sand. And Calibus sees this; he sees the footprints walking away. And there's a great freeze frame in the scene. There's an actual freeze frame on Calibus, which is great. He does like this snarl and you see his teeth. That's pretty cool. And then it leads to Perseus walking through the swamp because he's lost track of Pegasus, I believe. Right. right. He, he lost his ride. Lost. Yeah. The, the giant white stallion with wings. So yes. now just misplaced him. And he's walking through the swamp. And then the fight sequence ensues. And 
Calibus surprises him from behind in a bit of a wrestling match. And I like this because there's some back and forth effects, but we get a nice fight scene in the swamp. Uh, the effects, the, the setting works for me with the fog. It's grimy. It's swampy. There's a darkness and an ugliness to it that seems palpable to me in the scene. And eventually Perseus gets the best of Calibus and he has his sword and he swings it downward and you don't see what happens. It just cuts away to the next scene. And I thought that was kind of cool that they didn't actually show the violent act. You learn later that Perseus has severed the hand of Calibus with his sword, but you don't actually see it in that moment. I just thought that was kind of an interesting choice. So that's my first favorite scene, just the, what I'm just calling the Calibus scene. Uh, my first favorite scene is um, our first look at the Kraken. And you kind of touched on this a little bit at the beginning. It's the fall of Argos. You know, Zeus is a little pissed um, that his mistress and son have been sent out to sea. So it's like, hey, send out the Kraken, wipe out the town, much to the chagrin of some of the other gods because they do worship them and offer. But Zeus is not having any of this. Just send in the Kraken, wipe them out. Release the Kraken. And you mentioned this too, beside going out there, opening the cage underneath and... It kind of makes you wonder, like, how do they communicate to the Kraken? What he's supposed to do? I don't know. But I do, I, I do love the shot of, of just seeing the body swim out. I think Poseidon and, and the Kraken just have a silent communication. You know, they just understand one another. They don't have to speak. Yeah, like an Aquaman kind of thing. Sure. Um, and, of course, the city is right on the edge of the ocean. And uh, the Kraken just comes up and just, they just destroy this. It's just wave after wave. I mean, you're watching these poor actors run through these sets and just getting hit by water. Like some of it's fake, but some of it's like, oh man, they're really getting. Uh, There's a, yeah, I totally agree. There's one shot in particular I recall cringing. I was like, oh, those yeah. guys got nailed with yeah. the full yeah. buckets of water. Yeah. And then there's like a, a huge uh, statue that comes falling down and crumbling. But yeah, that place gets destroyed and flooded. Yeah, it's it cool. You, know, you just want to see the crack, and the crack is just a badass. Because first, you just think it's got like the two arms, and then the other two come up, and he's just growling. I wish he kind of attacked the scene a little bit more, but yeah, he just yeah. You wanted I kind of wanted him to do a little Godzilla on it on that town, like just mm-hmm. kind of stomp through it. Yeah, he's just hanging out in the water, uh, staying cool. But the creature design it was really cool, especially as a kid. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, but as a kid, yeah, seeing the creature come out of the water and just wipe out this whole town, just flood and water everywhere and everyone doing the the infamous hands up ah, and the wave comes over and then they're gone i just love that stuff that's just great <laughs> all those fun disaster 70 movies that's what very much so now. so i loved it first i've seen the fall of argos the first appearance of the kraken yeah man uh i wanted to call out another moment when we are basically off and running on the hero's journey at this point of the film where uh, this moment takes place. And this is when Perseus and his fellow soldiers are going to see the Stygian witches. And I actually like this. It's not one of my favorite scenes, but I do find it entertaining. I just call it this moment because this movie borrows a lot here and there from things and maybe, you know, maybe other movies borrow from Clash of the Titans. But uh, in this particular sequence, 
uh, we have Perseus and his soldiers climbing the rock face. Oh, I felt, ba- I felt so bad for them doing that. Up to the lair where yes. the witches reside. And all I could think was like, oh, this is a little reminiscent, reminiscent of another film that came out in 1981. A James Bond movie called For Your Eyes Only. <laughs> climbing the rock face up to the lair. Yes. I'm like, man, this movie is just stealing from everything. But at least had Bond had rope and mountain climber gear. These poor guys are oh, their freaking leather outfits and sandals. And oh yeah, there's a great moment where I think Perseus is the one who slips, and another soldier catches his foot. Yeah, that was pretty. Uh, the reflexes on that soldier it was like good, good job, buddy. Just save. Then it. you got Bubo just flying around like, hey, I'm up at the top. What are you guys doing? Yeah, yeah. I was really feeling it for those soldiers climbing that mountain. I was like, that's tough. No, thank you. Uh, so there's some moments in there. I just wanted to call that. Like, and I think, I don't know, for, for your eyes only may have come out after this movie. So maybe they stole it from Clash of the Titans. But that's all I could think of. I thought that was funny. Did you have another moment or scene you want to call out? I do remember those witches kind of freaking me out, though, as a kid. Though. Yeah. Oh, sure. Having no eyes. And they're cooking. And there's bones all over the place. And it's, I'm like, this is PG? <laughs> We understand at this point because it was there's a little exposition earlier that these witches have a taste for human flesh. And so when we see the witches gathered around their cauldron, there's a human hand that reaches out of the pot as if he's no. being cooked alive. Yeah. And we're like, oh, <laughs> this is no, no bueno. Yes. And these creepy old witches. Give me the eye. Yeah. Give me the eye. That was, I think, just that was. Maybe this, this is turning out to be one of our favorite scenes. Uh, that was a cool aspect of the fact that in order to see, they have a glass ball that they look through that gives them the power of sight momentarily, Yeah, which is weird, but some fun stuff there with the Stygian witches. But yeah, this will uh, take me into my next favorite moment because after they see the witches, the witches basically, they go to see the witches to get information on how they can save Andromeda from the Kraken. Yeah, Perseus needs to know how he can kill the quote-unquote invulnerable Kraken. And the witches can tell him. And the witches let him know is uh, the only way you're going to do it is Medusa. The sight of Medusa can turn any living thing into stone. And uh, if you can procure her, and they actually say cut off the head, which I don't know if they need to do that, but I'm sure that would be... I don't think Medusa's coming willingly anyway, so they're going to take the head and show it to the Kraken and they'll turn the Kraken into stone. So they have to go to this aisle and uh, they're at the river sticks and the river sticks across the aisle and we get to meet the ferryman. I love the freaking ferryman, man. He is so cool. Oh, I'm glad that was my, I'm looking at it right here. That was my next moment. Always as a kid and today still. And honestly, I think the movie kind of takes off from this point. Like I'm like the rest of the movie is awesome from this. Yes. Not that it wasn't up to this point, but I like, yeah, hell yeah. Go for it, man. So they go to the edge of the the river and you can see the island off in the distance. And there's like a, almost like some kind of stand and it's got a horn on it. So Perseus blows the horn and you're just kind of looking out in the river and then just out of nowhere. It's not even like a fog. It just kind of just appears with the boat and you see the the ferryman just coming in. And um, Thallow, who's one of the men that are with Perseus, goes, you're going to have to give him this. And he gives him like this coin. All right. By the way, I I called Thallow fake beard. The entire time. I was oh, watching. did you? I don't know. It looked like he had a fake beard. I don't know. So it's great because then the boat comes ashore and everyone's about to get on. And then you just see the hand come out and it's a skeleton hand. And 
Percy's, of course, is taken aback, and then you see the ferryman's head, and you can see it's a skull, and you're just like, oh, this is so fucking cool. Yeah. And Perseus puts the the coin in his hand, and the hand like closes over it. Not it's just funny because it covers it, but doesn't like close itself on it. Just like, however they did in the castle. But I think that's even cooler that it doesn't close on the coin itself. It just kind of covers it. And then all the men get on the boat, and then you just see you know the ferryman taking them over to the island, and you just see the hand around the the oar. Like the Fermans all just in these black robes, and you just yeah, see the head totally the skull. like cloaked. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's so cool. He is so cool. I would totally hire him, ferry me somewhere. <laughs> there should be like a Clash of the Titans theme park. Yeah. And that because it makes me think of the ride uh the Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, uh at Disney, mm-hmm. Disneyland, Disney World. When you kind of go in and you get onto the boat, it's like that slow moving boat ride. Uh, like that would be like a cool, like the best part of the Clash of the Titans theme park. Well, it's funny you say that into- too, because even when uh, Drama shows up at Calibus's, you know, Marshland, that's mm-hmm. where I was like, oh, they took the set right from the pirates. Right. You have the skull hanging up in the tree and the other skull oh, hanging totally. up. Like, oh, this is totally the big, yeah. And, uh, and there's, it's just fog everywhere and it's dark. Yeah. Yeah. So I couldn't agree with you more. I, the character is Charon. C-H-A-R-O-N. That is in mythology, the ferryman. And that takes you, it's kind of like crossing the threshold over mm-hmm. to either Hades Hell, uh, in this case, Isle of the Dead, I believe is what they call it. And it was just fascinating as a kid. I was like, wait, you got to pay this, like, go ahead. Yeah, no, just saying, because just even the mask, when, when they get off the boat and they show them one last time, I'm like, that mask is still amazing looking to like, I wish I could go to a costume shop and get that. Cause that's what I would want to be for Halloween. And it's that mask is so cool. It's weird because it's so straightforward. It's a skeleton, but whatever they did, like a slight adjustment here or there, whatever, it looks great. Yeah. The way it fitted on that actor's face yeah. is like, Oh my God, this just looks better than what you could find anywhere. And I still liked it watching it today. I was like, oh, I love the ferryman part when they yes. get into the boat and the fog and the dark. And because when he blows that horn, the ferryman just kind of magically appears in the mist mm-hmm. on the on the river, sticks. Yeah. And he just magically appears and comes slowly towards them. And then you another realize, oh, it's shadow. Like this living skeleton. Yeah. Yeah, another shadow. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm such a fan of that Charon, uh, the ferryman character. And I realized, Bill, Ban, on this rewatch, this is where it comes from, my fandom of Karen, that I wrote a character into a short film that I've yet to produce, but called Story Park. There's an older woman, the homeless woman, and she is supposed to be that character. And I have the protagonist handing her a coin, and it's supposed to represent that sort of thing. And she enables him to kind of cross into this other world. And I just, I just think it's like cool that that there is a specific character that can take you from one, you know, region to another. That there's someone like a designated, yeah. There's just, you know, there's just it's just a cool, cool idea. About, yeah, something about cool about a skeleton and ropes. I don't know what it is. Yeah, but yeah, I remember as a kid there was a a ride at uh, down the shore and they had a poster and it was of the skeleton in the ropes pointing like come come to our ride. It was a dark ride where you go in a boat and you go underneath like the Swanon Castle. But that image always stands out to me too. Yeah, I, it, just, I just love, yeah, skeletons and robes. <laughs> Can't go wrong. Yep. 
So I will get to my next favorite scene, which uh, may be one of yours, but it's definitely the most memorable for me. And I had mentioned it already, and I'm simply calling it the Medusa scene. Oh, yeah. We're on the same page here. So little did I know, speaking of, this is what I love. I was about to say this when we were talking about Karen the Ferryman, is that you start thinking about these characters, these characters in mythology, and you can go down rabbit holes and you just start reading it. You look it up on Wikipedia or research it, read a book. And it's kind of like I, I compare it to comic book characters in this way or because it's mythology, it's lore. And I love this stuff. And you get into uh, character background. But I compare it to like I'll go maybe to Vromans in Pasadena. Wonderful old bookstore. Recommended highly if you're in the area. Check it out if you haven't already. Vromans. It's been there forever. Beautiful book bookstore. Multi-level. And you go down the comic book aisle you pick up one of those huge books and it's like the DC universe, the Marvel universe, and you start flipping through it. And then you just get lost because you're like looking up different characters and researching all the lore. Like, who's this guy? What does he do? And it's the same thing here with mythology, with Greek mythology, Roman, whatever it might be uh, with Charon. But here Medusa is the same thing where I did some research. I'm just like reading on Medusa and it's mentioned in this movie, I think by three witches, actually the Stygian witches, they call her a Gorgon. And I was like, wait, is it Medusa or Gorgon? Well, Medusa is a Gorgon and a Gorgon or Gorgon is a creature in Greek mythology and occurs in earliest examples of Greek literature. The term, I guess, most commonly refers to three sisters who are described as having hair made of living venomous snakes and horrifying visages that turned those who behold them into stone. Uh, traditionally, two of the Gorgons, Theno and Uriel, were immortal, but their sister Medusa was not and was slain by the demigod and hero Perseus. So a little history okay. on the Gorgons. There were three sisters, one being Medusa. But in this Medusa scene, I think it's still wonderful. The setting when Perseus enters this arena, if you will, this hall, and it's dimly lit just by flame torches he enters with two other soldiers. One has been slain already by Medusa's guard dog with two heads. So it's just the three of them now, as Perseus says. <laughs> uh, or it's now, what does he say? It's just three against one now. Yeah. And they enter Medusa's lair and the lighting is just so dim. So again, as you mentioned, Bill, shadows everywhere, bouncing off the walls. And what do you hear first? But the like that rattling. The sound design is awesome in this yeah. because it starts off where it's totally quiet. And the first thing you hear is that rattle. And you see the shadow of it's the rattlesnake tail mm -hmm. and you see the rattler going off, but it's the shadow and the tail curled up underneath it. And then, you know, there you've got obviously Perseus and his two fellow soldiers who know the tactic is to use the reflection in the back of the, their shields in order to look at her, not to look directly into her eyes or else she will turn them to stone. So if they are to look upon her, they can only uh, use the reflection, but they start creeping around the columns in this hall here or this particular room. And then who slithers out, but Medusa herself. And as soon as she came out, Bill, I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the stuff of nightmares. It is. Uh Yeah. This is why uh, I was shit myself as a kid. Yeah, PG film. She looks horrifying. Oh yeah. Even though you know it's fake, fake upon fake, but she still looks nasty and crusty 
and slithery and slimy. And she's half snake and she's got snakes crawling all over her head. That's her hair and gnarly teeth and covered in scales. Regardless, she slithers out and looks incredible. That's just the beginning of the scene. And not only that can, you know, well, she can look at you and turn you into stone, but she happens to be pretty handy with a bow and arrow. So that's her weapon of choice. Badass. Yeah. And she takes out one of the soldiers right away. And by the way, the first guy who gets the arrow uh, in the back, he falls into a hot tub and the jets suddenly turn on. Yes. I'm like, man, you know, it sucks that he had to go. But I mean, if you got to go, there are definitely worse ways than dying in a hot tub. You know, there you go. I was like, well, maybe his last moments were rather soothing. Yeah. You know, she cranked on the jets and it was like, you got some some bubbles. Um, The pacing and the lighting of this scene are just great. The pacing is wonderful. I think it's perfect. It's intense still. It's like the build up to how is Perseus going to defeat Medusa? Because she's really intimidating. She's a lot bigger than I remember, too. I thought she was a little bit more like uh, not petite, but like uh, like a smaller slithery maneuver. Like, but she's just really impressive. And uh, unfortunately, soldier number two gets knocked over. I forgot how he got knocked over. I don't know if it was. She, yeah, because he has the shield sticking out of the column. And she, oh, right. And shoots she shoots the shield. She shoots with the an shield. arrow. Very smart. And, and he uh, stumbles and falls over, looks behind him, and of course makes the, the breaks the cardinal rule here. He looks right at her and she, her eyes are a fire. They are a glow. It was just great. This bright green glow. And he turns to stone and it's like, oh no, that's yeah. awful. He that's was dead awful. regardless. He was either going to get an arrow in the back or he was going to turn to stone. Yeah. I'd prefer to be dying in a hot tub, not be yeah. turned to stone. Uh, just can't feel good. So that's not good. And now it's mano e mano. It's mano e medusa. It's per- Perseus versus Medusa. And it's little cat and mouse around the columns of this room. She's slithering around. He's trying to figure out where she is and he looks at his shield and hears the echo of Zeus who spoke to him earlier in the film on his shield and says, the shield one day will save your life. As a distraction, he throws the shield onto another stone statue and she uses her bow and arrow, shoots the shield, shield falls and now he's without his shield. But she is, he, Perseus, knows that she is approaching basically like on his right side and he's hiding behind the column and he's just got to wait and listen. And it's kind of like in, when you watch uh, like a, an old West shootout and the, the camera comes closer and closer in on your face mm-hmm. or the faces of the characters. This is the same thing where just the camera keeps closing in and pushing in on Medusa's face and then Perseus' face as he's sweating it. And as soon as Medusa slithers right up next to uh, Perseus. He times it exactly right, swings his sword out and removes Medusa's head. And this, it gets into some creepy shit because she does not die immediately. Nope. (laughs) And you alluded to this earlier, Bill, like she's slithering, her headless form is slithering around and you get some great sound design, as you mentioned, just some creepy sounds. She finally falls over and all this goopily got comes out of her neck. And it just looks like, I don't know, what, what what do you would you equate it to? What does that even look like, that goobly-gog goop? I don't even uh, know. That's the thing. I always 
it's almost like super thick tomato sauce or something. I, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And we, we also had learned earlier, we know that her blood is poisonous. Yeah, because it's literally starting to melt his shield. So the great thing here, which is even cooler, is that the scene's not over. He's got to grab Medusa's head without looking at her and not getting any blood on him. Because even though she is technically dead, her head, she can still turn you to stone. The power still resides within her head. Yeah. Good thing the snakes are done. Yeah, right. That's true. Because Perseus, who now has to back up and kind of feel around and which I'm thinking, man, that would suck. Like, I got to I can't look at her head. I got to pick up her head and her hair is made of snakes. That sucks. No, thanks. But he does it, picks up her head, manages it to to put it into the cloak, which isn't uh, the poison isn't going to affect it. Or I forgot what the because he touched the witch's eye. And it gives him the like a magical power, and they tell him that he can use his robe to hold right the robe. So head and, yeah, he wraps up her head in the robe, and there's a great hero moment, hero shot here at the end when he walks out of Medusa's lair and stands atop the stairs and lifts her head up into the sky as victorious. And it's awesome. I remember that. I just love that as a kid. It was like, holy shit, he did it! He did it! It's funny because I kind of laugh at that now because I'm like, say the soldiers could see that from the other side of the island. Right. <laughs> they turn this. I'm like, why are you? Who are you lifting that? Who are you for? doing this for? Like he's raising it to the to show the gods. Yeah. To make them proud. And there's a great transition here because then the lightning in the sky. Yeah, that is a cool goes transition. off, and it's cool. And it was, that scared me as a kid because it's creepy. Again, you get that weird projection where you see Medusa's head. Her face is like glowing within the sack. This, that he's made out of the robe and tied off. And then it transitions in, into the next scene where now he's off, I guess, of the, is he still on the aisle? I think he's off the aisle. They're off. Yeah. And so it's like their first night. Right. We assume that he's returned. He's come back over the river and now he's back on the mainland and uh, her head is in the sack. It's the Medusa scene, man. It's freaking awesome. Don't know if you, we wanted to add anything to that. Yeah, which is great about the scene, like I said, sound design, the lighting you mentioned, just the fact that it's technically a little mini sculpture that uh, Ray Harryhausen has made and integrated in this scene, and it just works perfectly. It's probably the most believable looking of all the characters in mm-hmm. the film, I think. And he said as much as it was one of his favorite characters to do and animate, and I can certainly see why. But God, that thing must have been a pain in the ass with all the snake heads. And the fact that there's just that cool when she goes to the stairs and she crawls down with her hands, she like bends over and just kind of pulls herself in the hands. And then after that, the snake spotty's just kind of pushing her down the aisles. It's creepy. I can't believe this movie's PG. I mean, I was afraid of it, but I kept watching it because I couldn't get enough of it. That scene in the movie. It's a fun scene. That goopity goop thing. I don't know. Gross. Uh, So that scene, it is still a lot of fun and creepy and holds up for me. Did you uh, want to go to your next scene? or No, that was it for scene? me. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm just going to go to my last scene then, and that's uh, the Kraken scene. It's the finale. I, I love this scene because I remember, you know, and this is mostly, I think, because of nostalgia. It's seeing our hero save the day and get the princess. He gets the girl, and he faces off like the ultimate villain here in this giant Kraken creature. And 
we see the Kraken come up and, and we have Andromeda who's chained up to the rocks and this is not looking good. And who shows up at the last minute, but yeah, Perseus on his winged horse, Pegasus. And he's going to take Medusa's head out of the, the sack basically, but the Kraken knocks him off the horse. It like gets a, a good like claw into the back of yeah. Pegasus, knocking Pegasus into the sea. And so they both, go into the water, uh, Perseus and Pegasus, and the sack with Medusa's head drops into the water, and you're like, uh-oh, this is no bueno. And But who comes to the rescue here in this moment but Bobu. And so Bobu swings down and grabs the sack, tosses it to Perseus, who's climbed ashore, and he then pulls out Medusa's head, who then sets the kraken into stone. <laughs> And it's yeah. just an awesome moment because you see that transformation of the Kraken freezing, like uh, the oh shit moment for the Kraken. And he transforms into a stone figure and you see all the cracks appear and then he crumbles into the ocean. So it, it's just awesome because you get Pegasus, you get Perseus being the hero, you get the Kraken, you have the, the princess in uh, dire straits here and Perseus saves the day. So... It's a great culmination. It's a great uh, climax in, in, of the movie. I, I just love that resolution at the end. I uh, loved it as a kid. Love it today. Just kind of like you cheer them on. That's my final moment. And that's what are, where I'll end this segment from, for me. I love that the crowd is cheering. They're all kind of standing on the cliffs and stuff. So, and uh, Pegasus is really flexing at the end. Oh, yeah. So I'm saying. The crowd is applauding and Pegasus is soaking it up just getting up on his hind legs and uh, neighing and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was funny. I felt bad for all the fish after uh, Perseus throws Medusa's head into the ocean. All those fish now turned to stone. I was like, put it back in the bag every, at least, man. Every, I was wondering about that. Hey man, you're out there. You're, you're one of the, you know, the local Jap Japonians, I guess. Yeah. Doing some Jap- fishing. Jap- Japawans, Japans. That thing's not going to wash ashore? You're just swimming, going out. You know what, honey? I'm going to go for a a quick dip. Oh, hey, look. What's that? There's a head under the... And you're stunned. Yep. And you sink to the bottom, never to be seen again. Yeah, he should have thought that through a little better. A little reckless, Perseus, throwing Mm -hmm. Medusa's head into the ocean like that. Yeah, because the fish can't eat it. And time to get close, turn to stone. (laughs) Think it through. Come on. All right. Let's move on to our next topic which is soundtrack absolutely lawrence rosenthal is the composer of this score i enjoyed the score very thematic very classic orchestral score lots of triumphant horns and strings very sweeping romantic it's perfect for a fantasy film lawrence rosenthal is 95 years old still with us still going wow you go larry Lawrence Rosenthal went on to work on several TV movies and TV series, most notably Fantasy Island. So the theme from Fantasy Island, that's Lawrence Rosenthal. But then he would go on to score the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles TV series. And also the Adventures of Young Indiana Jones TV movies. Lawrence Rosenthal. Okay. Yeah, I enjoyed the music a lot too and noticed that he was doing some a couple of themes there for Pegasus. There was like a Pegasus theme, mm-hmm. Perseus theme. Yeah, it was good stuff. I was surprised. Yeah. I was like, why do I not know this guy that well? 
don't really know anything else. Yeah, I did a lot of TV after. Yeah. All right, so this uh, takes us to our next segment, which is Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. And if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. Okay, so I'm just going to start off with the Swiss cheese. Because this movie is a mix of like Greek and Roman mythologies, we're just going to roll with it. You know, it's a fantasy film, definitely holes. We got it. Yeah. Everything doesn't mix. So we're, we're just going to file complaints. We're just going to file complaints. Leave the cheese with it where it is and just file complaints to the complaint department. So, Jason, what do you have for the complaint department? Um, here's my first complaint. Our hero, our protagonist, Perseus. Perseus, when he gets the sword, we see him swinging it back and forth a little bit in the amphitheater. Mm-hmm. I would have appreciated a nice training montage. Oh, yes, movie. definitely. Because we're uh, where did Perseus get all of his fighting skills? I don't know. He seems to be pretty qualified, and I don't know when he was back on that island with his mother, Danae, uh, did he train at all? Was he a skilled fighter? seemed like they were pretty isolated, and he was just busy learning how to do fancy tricks riding a horse. Self-taught, I guess. I agree with you. All right, so in the beginning of the movie, the uh, we'll, we'll just call it the coffin boat. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing how that thing was able to go against the tide. Um. The whole time, like, is that, does that have a motor on it? Giant waves crashing onto the shore, yet it still keeps going out to sea. Somehow. Yeah, I was like, it's like a, it's like a <laughs> surf on a surfboard, just going right it's out there. Going. I was like, uh, that should have went right back ashore. Then <laughs> they have to throw them out again. I was like, wait till the sea's not so rough, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, how the hell did that thing get out the sea to begin with? I mean, I understand once, you know, Zeus told Poseidon to take it somewhere, but. There's no, there's no way that would have got past the, yeah, the waves. That's a good call. Hey, Bill Ben, I, I've got a note for Calibus. Yes. Listen, you're the Lord of the Marsh. It's this is your backyard. Perseus is just kind of strolling around the swamp, not knowing his head from his ass, and he actually loses his helmet, which is fine because he doesn't know how to wear it. And here's my note for Calibus: If you're going to surprise Perseus from behind, just stab him in the back. I thought the same thing. Why put him in a headlock or try try to wrestle him to death? Not a good tactic. Unless he was trying to get information out of him. I don't know. But I, I was just thought, like, just you got, him. yeah, that's all. It's my complaint there. This always bothered me. The initial voice of the shield when Perseus gets his. <laughs> yes. It's so hate, weird. I hate that voice. I hate it. I was like, why didn't they have Olivier do the voice from the get-go? Perseus, come come to me. Yeah, it sounds like a like some weird Muppet voice or something. Like yeah. a weird, uh, yeah. Come to me first. I don't even. I can't. Yeah, even you know it. that's what it was. Thank you. Yeah, it reminded me of something like from a different fantasy movie of some kind. It was a weird voice. Some strange. Yeah, but it wasn't Zeus. It wasn't Lawrence Olivia. Yeah, I know. I was like, they're trying to pretend it's muffled because he's facing the wrong way. But that right. voice, I, I yeah. just I hate that voice. Me too. And it threw me off because as I think I mentioned earlier, when I was watching it, it was, and I was like watching it today going, I don't remember this. What is it? Did the, does his shield have a voice? Is it like a cartoony voice? Is his shield like a character unto itself? And then he turns it around and you see Zeus. I'm like, Oh, right. What was that voice? (laughs) What the hell really throws you off? That voice annoys me. Uh, Speaking of, of tactics, I was questioning Calibus and his tactics, 
I'm questioning Thetis and her tactics because, look, if she doesn't want anyone besides her son, Calibus, to marry Andromeda, then why place Perseus, who's a handsome young man, in a position to even potentially win Andromeda's hand? Look, I understand that she wants Perseus to be placed in harm's way and to like endure certain trials, but still you would think you'd keep sexy Perseus as far away from sexy Andromeda as poch- you know as much as possible. Now, Thetis should be trying to get revenge upon Zeus above all. I guess she was hoping that Perseus would die, thus thereby hurting Zeus. But I was a little confused as to what Thetis was doing there. Yeah, that does make sense. Keep those two as far apart as possible. And then I just or place Perseus somewhere else, you know, that where right. he could easily get killed if that's your goal. Don't put him within arm's reach of your daughter. Yeah, I guess he's hoping that he would try the answer the riddle get and it wrong, fail and fail. Right. I get that. It's just a little. Would you know his dad is Zeus and it's got a little bit of backing there? Yeah, I, I wouldn't put those two in the same room. All right. So my next complaint: someone should tell Pegasus to go find another watering hole. <laughs> I almost laughed the first time because I was thinking like if that was now all I could see is like 800 people with their freaking camera phones waiting for Pegasus to show up to get a drink of water so they can take like 8,000 pictures. Once someone knows where Pegasus is going to get drinking and all the other winged horses have been killed yeah you gotta send them somewhere else Agreed. Not cool I think Pegasus has got a real ego honestly I think he goes to the watering hole because he wants to be seen I think he just he likes the attention and he thinks he can get away in case somebody comes after him, even though that's proven wrong because Calibus yeah. gets him pretty easily, as does Perseus in the beginning when he Yeah. I mean, like I talked about, you know, Pegasus is flexing at the end of the movie. The guy the Pegasus got some vanity issues, yes. I think. And uh he really likes that watering hole. That's his watering hole. He just doesn't want to doesn't want to change. Mm-hmm. But that's a good point. I agree. I, I was a little upset because we don't know really what happened to uh, Perseus's mom. That's funny. I wrote Percy's mom. I guess I'm going to call Percy's uh, Percy for short. <laughs> what yeah. happened to Percy's mom, Danae? Hey. Uh, but I, then I look. I went back for a second, and Perseus does say, "My mother's last wish was that I become, you know, I'm the prince of Argos or Argos, and I will, I am the heir to Argos, and I will go there and rule." So you kind of assume that she passed at some point. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of like, what happened? Is she just chilling on whatever Safeta? I think whatever that something like that was the island that they ended up on. Since you brought her up, they didn't do her any justice with her little clay figure. That's for sure. Oh, no, not at all. She's hot. Yes. And that's really my whole point is that I, I was missing today. Yes. And it was like, what happened to uh, our sexy mom? And that figurine didn't look anything like her. No. They should get the cracking on the carver. <laughs> How come no one in Joppa notices a giant freaking loud vulture that constantly flies over the city? I almost had to turn my TV down. That thing is freaking loud and it really annoying. You know how I'm with you that Jim Carrey makes the most annoying sound of the world and dumb and dumber. This tops that. Oh yeah. The vulture. Oh my God. How many times we have to look at it and hear it make a noise. Yeah. I did not like the vulture. That's the worst creature in the movie. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah. I was just like, how does the hell does Andromeda not wake up? Yeah. Right. Like, 
I get like his, her disembodied form comes separates from her and what, but how do you, I mean, the vultures make that much sounds all the time. I mean, I've only seen them at the zoo. I've never, luckily I've never seen one in the wild. Yeah. I was just like, shut up. Yeah. If you see one in the wild, that probably means you're not in good shape. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Give me, give me a Bobo doing his. Any day. That's That's good. The whistles. That's good. Thank you. I mean, that thing shows up like every three days to the castle. Hey, there's a 60 foot vulture flying over the. Wonder what that's all about. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in these Greek mythology, you know, it's it's uh, maybe it's just old hat for them. I, you know, it's regular. It's just that's a normal day mm-hmm. in uh, Japo. You know, yeah. Who knows? But I, yeah, I'm just gonna call you Bill Bobu from now on. <laughs> I usually complain about old person makeup, okay. but this time I'm complaining about makeup on an old person <laughs> okay uh it was just the the stygian witches the the makeup just looks really caked on their faces <laughs> it's just like it's not terrible uh, it, it's okay uh it just looks a little strange because they're they're supposed to be like their eyes are permanently either shut or they they don't right. have any eyes i couldn't quite tell what they were going for there mm-hmm. But they've just got like these big lumps of makeup yeah. all over their face, their foreheads, and their eyes. And I'm like, is that is that Play-Doh? What did they put on your faces? Is that just they clumped some clay on you and kind of made it flesh colored? It still looked, you know what I'll say though, it looked it still looked creepy. Oh, because yeah. there was they're dirt so all creepy. over it, and it was yeah. like they're just dirty, nasty witches. Yes, they are. Um, uh, Jay- go for it, man. Jason. We got a giant scorpion on the loose, and no one seems <laughs> to care. Because in, in one of the cool scenes where after they retrieve Medusa's head, Calibus shows up, stabs the bag, blood drips out, and it creates these three huge scorpions. It's a really cool fight scene right? with uh, Perseus and the two remaining soldiers. Yeah. And they kill two of them. And the third one just kind oh, of disappears. Shit. How about that? So there's a giant scorpion. There were three. Yes. That's crazy. Yeah, Thalon kills one, Perseus kills the other, and then the scorpion kills the other soldier. And then Calibus kills Thalo. Correct. And then Perseus kills. Yeah, Perseus and Calibus get into it, but also, well, no, yeah, and then, yeah, Perseus kills the other scorpion. But then, yeah, so yeah. we got a scorpion on the loose, man. We got seven yeah. scorpion running around. No, thanks. Those things, yeah, freak me out. It's a cool fight scene, but yeah. Yeah, that, that's a fun scene. And good old Perseus like throws his whips his sword, hit yep. like right at Calus, get him right in the stomach. It's good stuff. Yeah, that, that was kind of cool how he loses everything that he gets. Loses the helmet in the swamp, loses the shield to Medusa's head, and then for some reason leaves the sword in Calus's chest and walks off. Look, Perseus, he's a bit of a ditz. That's, that's just true. my thing. That's I think he's way... a little flighty. He's like, that's not getting... how we're going to treat people's gifts, man. Like, be a little more respectful. Be aware. You might need that later on. Hold on to the sword. Yeah, at the wedding, when you know the registry, I would get the cheapest thing, knowing how he treats gifts. I'm like, you're just getting towels, man. Look at the end. You know, if I was Amon Burgess Meredith, I'd be like, hey, what happened to the three gifts that the gods gave you? Your helmet, your shield, and your sword. What happened to those? Oh, 
Right. I forgot. I don't know. Where are they? Although the shield was disintegrating in Medusa's blood. So, yeah. Well, I'll give him a pass on that. Uh, you know, I mentioned Perseus's or Percy's, Percy's mother's last wish was that he returned to Argus and it's, you know, as its rightful prince and heir. I, I guess that's never going to happen because now he's a Japoan or Japonian because he's marrying Andromeda, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking he's probably going to stick around there for a while. Maybe, maybe they go to Argos at some point. I, I, I don't, don't think he is. I don't think he is. I think they're breaking up and he's just, he's, oh, right. He's, yeah. He's going to, he's the whole fulfills mom's wish. Don't worry. <laughs> right. He's going to take care of it. That's his excuse. That's his out. Yep. He's like, uh, hey, Andromeda baby, Andro, listen, uh, I have a prophecy to fulfill or a, a promise yeah. to keep, to keep to my sweet, sweet mom, whom I left not by choice on an island somewhere. And uh, I got to get to Argos and uh, rule. So you can't come, unfortunately. It's This is just me, but uh, I'm going to miss you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. All right. Um, I got kind of a complaint slash question. Amon, does he have another speaking line in the second half of the film? After he, he doesn't speak again. And then he's always kind of hanging around the queen. Like, are those two getting it on? Amana and Cassiopeia? Yeah. Or Cassiopeia? I don't know. How does Zeus pronounce it? Yeah. Lawrence Olivier has some weird uh, pronunciations in this movie. Better than mine. He's still, <laughs> instead of sloth at the end, he says sloth, sloth. Anyway, um, so Burgess Meredith uh, maybe hooking up with the queen. Uh, good for him. But I literally don't think he has a line in the second half of the movie. After he it's, explains the whole thing with Medusa, we see him. He has expressions. I don't not think another word comes. The very end, when this could be a complaint, is when he talks to Bobu. And he says, you know what? This might make for a good poem or maybe oh, even right. a play. That's right. And I'm like, hey, Amon, since when do you understand Bobu? I yeah. thought that was only Perseus. Percy. Percy had that talent, but I guess. There you go. He did have Amon has the, the gift. Yeah. This might I make forgot about that play. one. Right. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're in this movie still. There you are. Yeah. It's a good question. Uh, I, that was it, really, for me, man. I don't yeah. have, do you have any other uh, complaints? No, but I was kind of happy that Perseus threw him the bone and just had him tell long, long and didn't just be like, hey, thanks for letting me use your place. I'm uh, heading over to the castle now. You can, you can stay in your dilapidated auditorium. Your, so. your amphitheater. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that was cool. That was cool. That was good. He, returned, he at least returned the favor. He's not good with gifts, but at least he's uh, good at helping out his friends. That's true. All right. Uh, no, I don't have anything else for complaints. So let's move on. It's hey, it's that actor. All right. Uh, so in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's hey, it's that actor. Jason, who do you got for Hey, It's That Actor? And I'm, oh, I should write it down and just show it up because I think I know who you got. Go. Yeah, I think I think this one is obvious because you know me. Uh, I am going with Pat Roach. Yeah. Uh, Pat Roach, who is one of the Greek gods. Uh, I don't know if he even has a line in this. I don't think he does. But he plays Hephaestus. Yeah, nice try. Hephaestus? Hephaestus. That's why I wasn't picking him because I could say Hephaestus. Yeah. We're going to go with Hephaestus. Okay. Hephaestus is played by Pat Roach, also known as the giant Sherpa 
or first mechanic from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, he's great. He's also the chief guard from Indiana Jones and the Temple Doom. Or you might know him as General Kale from Willow. Bill, I was going to ask you, man. I did. I haven't seen this movie in forever. If he's a character, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. Help me out. Lippe Lippe from Never Say Never Again. Oh, geez. Bond. Yeah. I don't know that. who Lippe is in that movie, but uh, Pat Roach, six foot five, barrel chested, big, big man, played a lot of the heavies and the thugs and the, uh, the muscle men in these movies. And, you know, of course, I think of the Indiana Jones films. Again, giant Sherpa. I mean, he's, yeah. The, yeah. I, the I totally missed him in the movie. I had to go back to see where I could find him. And he's the one that's, uh, yeah, building Bobu, just in case for our audience at home. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I didn't recognize him with the hair. Yeah, I'm used to yeah, he, he the, bald, the bald mechanic. Right, so it threw yeah, me off with the hair. The hair threw me off. But yeah, Pat Roach. Uh, he know he wrestled competitively under the name Bomber Roach, and at one time held both the British and European heavyweight wrestling championships. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, while he was still in the wrestling game, he broke into acting with a bit part in the Stanley Kubrick film, Barry Lyndon in 1975. I think that might be the only Stanley Kubrick. Well, no, there's technically two Stanley Kubrick movies. I've not seen Barry Lyndon is one of them and the shining technically. Oh yeah. Yeah. We know that. All right. I've, yeah, I've never seen Barry Lyndon. I don't, I've never seen is Lolita one. I haven't seen that one. Yeah. Peter Sellers in it. So I had to see that one. There you go. Who is it? Uh, your, Hey, it's that actor. So mine is uh, Mike Edmonds, who's... Oh, okay. It's not who un- I thought you were going to choose. Oh, okay. So he's uncredited, and he is one of the little people in Calibus's Swamp Lair. It's a blink-and-you-miss moment when a drama arrives for the first time, and you see the shot of the three little little people. He's the one all the way on the right. So obviously, Mike is a little person. And um, he is probably best known for his role as Og in Time Bandits. Oh, I did. Yes. Okay. I came yeah. across it. Right. Yeah, awesome. so it's the hel- yeah. It's the helmet. And he's got the horn hanging out on the side. But to us Star Wars fans, he had roles in both The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. In Empire, he played uh, one of the Ugnaughts. And in Jedi, he was Logre, the chief shaman of the Ewoks. So he was the one that was the yellow and white stripe one. And uh, they made an action figure of him, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I had. Yeah, and then I, I found this is cool because I'm going to have to watch this. Um, so in 2016, there is a documentary called Under the Radar, the Mike Edmonds story, which tells his life story. And uh, yeah, something I, I'm going to have to check out. So it'll look cool. cool. That's awesome, man. It's funny. Yeah. Uh, good call. Mike, Mike Edmonds or Ed. Okay. Mike Edmonds. All right. So it takes us to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia for? Clash of the Titans. Uh, well, we can start with good old Ray Harryhausen, who yes. used stop motion animation to create the various creatures in this film, including Calibus, the Vulture, Pegasus, Boo, Boobo. Uh, have we been saying Bobo? Boobo? It's Bo. Boobo? Oh, no, Boo. Yeah, it Boobo. Boobo. Boobo, yeah. Bill Boobo. Boobo. The mechanical owl, the two headed dog which I can't pronounce, Dioscalos. That's got to be close. Uh, Medusa, the Scorpions, the Kraken, all Ray Harryhausen creatures. Um, he was also a co-producer in this movie. Yeah, I didn't realize that until watching it this time that he was. I always just figured that this was his last movie that he did with uh, stop motion. 
Yeah, he yeah retired from filmmaking shortly after this movie was released. I guess. Despite, yeah. uh, go ahead, man. No, I'm just saying. Um, I've definitely seen a lot of his movies. Um, thanks to Turner Classic, because I think they like two years ago they had a uh, Ray Harryhausen marathon. I got to see The Beast from Twenty Thousand Phantoms. It came from beneath the sea. Earth versus the Flying Saucers. The Seventh Voyage of Sidbad. Right. Mysterious Island, which is kind of like a pseudo sequel to Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. I didn't realize that until about halfway through because they, they run into uh, Captain Nemo. And then, of course, Jason and the Argonauts, which has the infamous skeleton fight scene, which there you go, was probably outside of Medusa, probably a second best piece of work. Uh, if you're into stop motion animation, especially now with for those who are the Nightmare Before Christmas generation, you should definitely check out some of his stuff. And luckily, like I said, Turner Classic Movie tends to show his movies every couple of months um so check them out they're all kind of cool like i couldn't tell you that much about any of the movies itself outside of uh jason oh, and the or yeah. or mysterious island i just watched him just to watch his work in it right yeah he's a legend yes and so yeah don't don't get us wrong when we talk about kind of the dated effects in this movie he was a game changer uh, he changed the game for you know for a long time uh actually um and he was the one who created a form of stop motion model animation known as uh, Dynamation. So pioneer yes, in his a, field. A huge influence on future filmmakers. So Great stuff from Ray Harryhausen, legend in the biz. Yes, but not according to the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards. In 1981, nominated this as a Stinker Award for least special special effect. <laughs> that is why. Least special special effects. Yeah, that's why the Stinker Bad Movie Awards are not around anymore, because your nominations sucked. Hey, you had mentioned Ursula Andress, who plays Aphrodite in this movie. Uh, Striking, striking woman, beautiful woman, who uh, played uh, some classic uh, Bond ladies. So uh, Honey Rider and Dr. No, and then in 1967, Vesper Lind. So, yeah, just a little quick fact. Our stars... Or star Harry Hamlin and Ursula Andrews were romantically involved at the time of the production. Their son, Dimitri, was born in 1980 after filming was completed, and then their relationship ended in 1983. Yeah, oh, the film's screenwriter, Beverly Cross, who is a man, don't know many men named Beverly. No, I don't either. Was uh, married to Maggie Smith, who played yeah. Thetis, until, her, uh, until his death in 1998. Maggie Smith is very much still with us. Yes. And uh, Cross, the writer, he'd worked with producer Charles H. Schneer before writing the screenplay for Schneer's production of Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. yeah. Do you have some facts and trivia yourself there, man? You want to share? Yeah. So going, going back to, to Ray. So actually, they finished filming this movie back in 1979. And the stop animation took 18 months to produce. That's what, why the movie didn't come out until 1981. And... Ray Harryhausen actually felt rushed getting this done. And it was the first time he ever hired assistants to work with him on his stop motion animation. This is crazy. No kidding. I should have mentioned this before with Ursula Andress. Despite list being listed on the posters and having main title billing, she only has one line in the whole movie. Oh, I know. Weird. Underused. Yes, definitely. It's graceful. All right. Uh, this is more for Jason than our fans, but... <laughs> 
uh, a novelization of the movie was written. Uh, yeah, it came across this. Yeah, awesome. by Alan Dean Foster. Yeah, uh, just published in 1981. Um, it elaborated on certain characters a lot more than this movie. For example, all of Dallas' soldiers who accompany Perseus have names and dialogue, whereas in this movie, their faces are barely seen and they have no lines or names. So why do we mention Alan Dean Foster? Alan Dean Foster did novelizations of the Star Wars movies and, of course, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. And the last Starfighter. He's busy, man, in the 80s. He keeps popping up, Alan Dean. Um, and last back, hopefully this is true, because you never know when they talk about actors that they were up for these roles. So initially they wanted uh, Sir John Gilgood to play Amon. But the studio balked and wanted Burgess Meredith instead because they wanted an English actor in the cast. And, of course, Burgess Meredith, who played Mickey in the Rocky films, was an MGM guy. So I guess that's why they had used him. Yeah, they wanted an American. Right. They didn't want the movie to be too British. British. (laughs) Right. Good old Sir Lawrence Olivier was so ill during the making of the film he would often go and lean on his tall, burly co-star, Pat Roach. My hate's that actor. Yeah. Saying, let me draw some of your strength, dear boy. Here's a little, little bit of mythology background. Uh, Calibus, Lord of the Marsh and son of Thetis, does not appear in Greek mythology. He is based on Caliban, an antagonist William Shakespeare created in 1611 for The Tempest. In Greek mythology, the son of Thetis was Achilles, Greece's best warrior in the fight against Troy. Thetis' son was actually Achilles. So another little piece of mythology trivia. The sea monster seen at the start of the movie, the sea monster, the Kraken, that destroys the city of Argos was derived from Norwegian mythology. In Greek mythology, the sea monster that threatens Andromeda's people was called Cetus, or I think Cetus, meaning whale. The Norwegian-Swedish name Kraken is now used as a synonym for the giant squid. Hmm. Okay. And that's all I got, man. All right. So let's move on to box office. Um, Clash of the Titans released on June 12th, 1981. On an estimated budget of $15 million, it grossed $30 million domestically and $14.4 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $44.4 million. It debuted at number two at the box office behind another movie, which debuted that week. And that would become the number one movie of the year, Rands of the Lost Ark. It was able to stay in the top 10 for another four weeks before dropping out. It ended up being the 24th highest grossing movie in the U.S. between The Great Muppet Caper and Neighbors. Uh, moving on to reviews. When growing up in the early 80s, we loved catching sneak previews with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming movies. Their review of Clash of the Titans was unanimous. Two thumbs up. Nice. Yes, Gene found it to have very strong storytelling and grand-scale adventure, a movie for the whole family. Roger had a great time watching the movie and praised Ray Harry Hausen for his work on the film and took him back to his adolescence, and he loved that. So that brings us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions you have about Clash of the Titans? You know, I have a question here. Are owls pretty much the coolest creatures on the planet Earth? I think they might be. Have you ever seen like a, a demonstration, like either live or maybe at a zoo, or I've 
of anybody handle like a handler of an owl. Oh yeah. They're just they're amazing creatures and extraordinarily beautiful animals. And I just thought of that when you see Athena holding her owl but in the film and she won't let him go and that's why mm-hmm. she has uh Pat Roach's character uh create the mechanical owl. But I was just thinking they're just they're incredible. That's all. <laughs> but uh, um it also made me think of a, like there's a viral video out there right now that's really funny of I think it's an owl like at a uh, veterinarian like at a, and the poor owls like it's feet are covered covered in bandages it's so its talons are covered and everything so it, his uh my vocabulary is failing me but his feet are just covered they're all bundled up mm-hmm. so when the uh veterinarian puts this owl in a cage and stands him up he can't balance on his feet oh. so the veterinarian lets go of the owl and he goes and he falls over flat on his face and you just hear he just can't move he's stuck face down and the veterinarian has to pick him up and gets him and then he finally finds his footing but you're just like if you ever just see any videos of owls they're just they're the strangest and mysterious and coolest intriguing uh, beautiful beautiful creatures Uh, but once I was at the renaissance fair and there is a woman doing uh, demonstrations with an owl would fly from one perch to another, like uh-huh. over the audience. And you saw the wingspan and you see the head spinning around and the eyes. And it's just covered in the, just all the lush, you know, fuzzy feathers. And it's just like, you just want to go hug the thing and which is not a good idea, but they're amazing. Amazing. I, I don't know. This movie just brought out my appreciation for owls, Bill Bobo. That's what I'm saying. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> I don't have, you know, I didn't come up with, uh, any deep questions, man, or any other additional thoughts. So it's, I, I'm putting it all on you now. Oh, that's great. Cause m- <laughs> most of my stuff I had written down, we already went over at some other point. Yeah. Um, but I did find, find this interesting because uh, I was trying to look up a little bit about the director, Desmond Davis and right. you were saying about I, the, yeah. who's it that did the music? Oh my God. I'm totally blind. Lawrence Rose- Rosenthal. Yeah, the, that he's you're still alive at the age of 95. Uh, yeah, we lost Desmond Davis uh, mm. last year at the age of 95, uh, back in July. Wow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he did a lot of more TV stuff. He never really did another big movie. I was kind of surprised at that. I don't know. I thought he did a decent enough job that he was to get more film work. But yeah, he did kind of did more of the television thing afterwards. So Yeah, and he did. I, I saw on his IMDb a lot of camera work uh, and things like that behind the scenes. But um yeah, uh, I agree because this movie was great and it was a hit. You know, I mean, it did well. Yeah, I mean, you don't it's schedule well, it against a, the biggest blockbuster of the year. That's that's the studio's fault, right? But the movie held its own still, and it's yeah. a, a classic according to us. So, mm-hmm. kudos, Desmond. All right, let's just uh, move on to recommendations then. If All right, anything else to talk about? Yeah, I still like the film. Uh, I still think it's fun. I know it's kind of funny to think even uh, Gene said in this thing, it's a family adventure, man. I, this is, this is like PG 13 territory at best. Yeah. It's not a PG film. There's still some scary stuff in it. I would it'd be interested to see like someone for the first time watching it, especially a kid, what they would think of it. I don't know if they would like it or not though. 
That's the thing. Cause I mean, everybody's, you know, kills the special effects. Like, oh, they're outdated, they're antiquated. But like I said from the get-go, I'm like, how do we know that Pegasus never really moved like that? I mean, yeah, we know that it's stop motion. Yeah, we know it's stop motion animation because you know we're older and wiser, but I don't know how many how many of us have seen a winged horse. So how do we know it doesn't right. fly like that? So I don't know. I I even did like the scene where they kind of intercut the live footage with the horse. I thought they did a pretty good job with that. Agreed. I totally agree. I still like them. If I had the choice between the remake and this one, I'm taking this one 10 out of 10 times. Uh, yeah. You know, back in the early 80s, we had all these early, uh, what do they call them, sword and sandal films. And I think this is probably one of the best of the best. I would say check it out if you've never seen it before. You could say what you want about the the special effects, but... You know, if you if you're just into the history of movies and history of special effects, just to see uh, Ray Harryhausen's work, you, you need to watch this film. You need Absolutely. to watch this film, All even if you just watch the, the Medusa. Yeah, the Medusa scene. Check it out. Absolutely, you nailed that. I definitely recommend this film. Uh, it is close to my heart. I have fond memories, but also rewatching it today, I see why I loved it. I have an appreciation for it. Uh, from different perspectives, uh, just as a movie fan and a film maker. Uh, but uh, also, like you said, uh, yeah, mad respect for Ray Harryhausen. Just anytime a movie can inspire you on any level, it has achieved something and is worth watching. And this is one of those movies uh, to watch the effects. And once you get past the dated aspect of it, you still look at it and go, how did he do it? How did they do it? I would like to see the making of, of this because look at the detail, have an appreciation for the work that went into it and appreciate the time. This is 1981. And yes, the advent of, of technology was, you know, uh, in special effects in that arena was progressing exponentially and and things like that, but still he was a pioneer. And uh, so and like Bill said, the Medusa scene is is still, uh, in my opinion, unassailable. It's just so creepy and, and uh, well-directed and well-crafted. And Medusa, the, the creature itself, well-sculpted by Ray Harryhausen and uh, animated. So, uh, but beyond that, this I could see, speaking of like family adventure, I could see watching it with, you know, you said PG-13. I could see watching it with my 13-year-old ne- nephew because it would just be fun. This movie is fun. It yeah. is the boyhood fantasy hero's journey. Uh, it's that arc. It's the journey from a, a bit of the innocence to experience, but saving the princess. And you have uh, the various uh, obstacles and, you know, all a bit of the archetypes and all throughout. It's fun. It's a two hour movie that moves relatively quickly in my opinion i I agree with that it's action-packed it's not a a brain buster it's not you don't have to think too much so some great uh action scenes and a credit to the actors that perform that we talked about this it is loaded with special effects harry hamlin does a great job in this movie playing against pretty much nothing he's riding pegasus he's giving the right reactions uh he's he's selling it so, and not just him, all the other performers as well. Uh, great cast. Lawrence Olivier's in this movie. We've got uh, very, very pretty people, both men and women in this movie. There's a lot of attractive things about this movie. But yeah, uh, still would be fun to sit down with the younger generation to enjoy it. 
and have an appreciation for a little bit of film history, as you mentioned, Bill. So just have fun with it. Laugh at it. Enjoy it. Be thrilled by it all at the same time. There we go. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. The All 80s Movies Podcast is proud to announce we are now part of the Ship It Studios Podcast Network. You can check us out there at www.shipitstudios.com. Uh, we are very excited about this partnership and look forward to being part of the Ship It Studios family. Uh, not to worry, though, nothing changed with the show. Jason and I still have creative control. Um, this partnership will, will just open up opportunities for us to make the show better for our listeners. So please stay tuned. Uh, next week, we'll be discussing the 1984 musical drama Footloose, starring Kevin Bacon, Lori Singer, and John Lithgow. As always, please subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. You can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook, Meta, whatever it's called, at All 80s Movies Podcast, or tweet us at Podcast All 80s. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.